right, before we jump into the text, we're going to do what we do every Sunday. Talk to our kids, young ones, uh, tell you what to expect about uh, the, the text, what we're going to read, and what the sermon's going to be about. Okay, so this summer, kids, we are going through, anybody remember, kids, anybody remember what book we're going through this summer? Anybody. It's okay. Some of the adults probably don't remember because we started two weeks ago. We took a little break and we didn't start in the book that we said we were going to start in. So we are talking about Job, book of Job, Old Testament book. Most pe- kids, most people, when they, when they hear, uh, most people, when they hear, what is the book of Job about? They think it's about, you want to guess? Suffering. Thank you. Big kid. Uh, suffering. Uh, we, it, but, it's, but it's not about suffering. It's not. It is, but it's not. That's not the big, big point of Job. So what I, kids, what I want you all to walk out of here with this morning is just to know what the book of Job is about. Okay, you know, here's how we're going to do this. What's the best part about summer, kids? No school, and you're not going to school, and you're not taking any tests. No tests. No, teachers, why do you all give us tests? Right, kids? Why do teachers give us tests? So we can learn learn and so we can make sure we're actually, yeah, learning. Like to test us to see, do you know what you are supposed to know? There are all kinds of tests though. Not just in school, there are all kinds of tests that, uh, that are out there in the world to see, like tests to see who's telling the truth. They're like lie detector tests that police give people uh, back in the day. All kinds of tests to test all kinds of things like the, you know, there would be these tests to see who's right, who's wrong, uh, when people got in arguments. You know, back in the day, this is not too long ago, this is horrible, but when people thought there were witches, do you know what they would do with these, like, these women or these men who they thought were witches? They would throw them into water, into like a lake, because they thought witches are made of, witches are made of wood. So if this person floats, witch, and we got them. If this person sinks and drowns, ah, that's too bad. But at least we know they weren't a witch. That's a horror, it was horrible. It really happened, it was a terrible, terrible test. Uh, but that, that was uh, a kind of test uh, to try to figure out the truth. Who's telling the truth, who's not telling the truth? Another thing people used to do way back in the day, this was, this was for real, if two guys got in an argument, they would have what they call a belt wrestling contest. So these guys wore these big tunics and they wore these big belts around their waist. And if you got in a, if you got in a shouting match, you got in an argument with another guy, you'd be like, that's it, belt wrestling contest, let's go. We'll settle this. And then you would, you would, they'd grab each other's belts and try to wrestle each other to the ground. And whoever won, that, that guy was right. Uh, that was a test. Uh, how about this? They would test, like, when nations got in a fight, what do you think they do when nations get in an argument? Oh, uh, we'll see who's right, because we'll go to war. We'll settle this on the battlefield. And if two armies didn't want to all fight together, do you know what they would do? You do know this, because you've heard a, a really famous story about this. They would send out a champion. and say, hey, let's not, bam! David, David and Goliath. That's like the super, super famous one of like, hey, y'all, let's not all kill each other. Tell you what, you send out, you send out your biggest guy, your champion. We'll send out our biggest guy, our champion. And whoever wins that, they win the war. And David, little David, goes up against huge Goliath. And because of God, David takes down Goliath. So there's a battle of two champions. Kids, that is what Job is about. It is about a conflict 
So if you think of like, what is Job about? Suffering, conflict between two champions. Who do you think of the two champions in Job that are fighting it out? Who wants to take a guess? The two champions in Job duking it out to see who's right. Paul. Bam. God and the devil. And that's what we're going to see right here in the very, very first chapter of Job. Satan is going to come and challenge God. And basically what Satan is saying is, listen, you say you're going to save a people ever since the fall, that you're going to have a people, you're going to redeem them, you're going to save them. I don't believe it. You're a liar, God, that everybody belongs to me and you're not taking them back from me. And God says, challenge accepted, let's do this. And what the test is going to be, what the fight is going to be, is it's all going to be over Job. Job is the test. God is going to let Satan go and do horrible things to Job. And if Job holds on, holds on to God, God wins. That's what we're going to see in the book of Job. It's this big, big test about, for us, like what does it have to do with us? It's this huge, awesome story. It's true that God really does save his people. That grace really, really works. It worked for Job because do you know what Job believed? Job believed in the gospel. Job believed that God was going to send a savior to save him. And that saved Job. Job held on to it. How do you all know the gospel is true? How do you all know, this is the last question, kids. How do you all know God is going to save you? How do you know he has saved you? Y'all know this one. The Bible, and the Bible tells us all about who is the one person the Bible is really, really all about? Jesus. You know that you have been saved because Jesus has come. Jesus is the true champion who comes and defeats the devil, beats our sin, beats death for us by taking our death and judgment and punishment on the cross. So here's what we want y'all to know. Y'all's life is kind of like a test too, kids. There's gonna be hard stuff. Come what may, whatever happens, you'll have got to hold on to the gospel that Jesus really has saved you. That's what we're going to talk about today. That's what the book of Job is all about. We are in our new summer series in Job this morning. uh, And we're actually in Job this morning. Uh, We started the series in Genesis 3 because we're saying that you've got to get Genesis 3 to get what Job is all about. Got to have the fall when Adam and Eve sinned and ruined everything for everybody. You've got to have that as the context and the background of Job so that we can get Job. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Job chapter one, verses one to 12. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of his, uh, and each, let me do this again, hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. 
Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. To us, this scene, uh, this behind-the-scenes look into heaven and the workings of heaven is really unique and it's weird. But it's weird to us, but this was not weird to the ancients uh, when the book of Job was written. Do y'all, do y'all remember class? Do y'all remember your Iliad and Odyssey? Uh, uh, Homer, Homer is constantly in those stories. Homer's, or th- think of the, the classic version, Clash of the Titans, 1981. Um, Homer is constantly going back, you know, telling these ancient Greek stories, constantly going back and forth between the earthly scene and the heavenly scene of Olympus, uh, where you find out uh, about the gods determining the course of the Greeks, the course of the Trojans. Now, the Greek and the other ancient pagan myths are confusing at this point. As in, who's really running the show? Because y'all remember Zeus. You remember Zeus? You remember Poseidon, Hades, Apollos, Athena? You remember all those gods and goddesses? But don't y'all also remember uh, that at one point in the Iliad, I know, I know y'all remember, at one point in the Iliad, Agamemnon refers to capital R, ruin, refers to ruin as Zeus's daughter. And ruin entangles men one by one, and it says she even entangles Zeus himself. And then there's this other character, fate. I know y'all remember the very first few lines of the Iliad make it sound like the will of Zeus. The will of Zeus overpowers all. And then later, later in the book, uh, Zeus himself, he's beholden to fate. There are things he can and can't do with the Trojans and the Greeks because of fate, because things are fated. So the ancient Greeks, they believed this stuff. And they found it really confusing too. Like who is ultimately running the show? What's the hierarchy of the cosmic powers? Doesn't seem to be uh, a clear one. They didn't know, and so they concluded that the universe is mysterious and that uh, people's actions are also mysterious. What's really behind them, we don't know. And what happens in life is ultimately it's beyond understanding. And this is where Job differs 
from the surrounding, because this is, this is common, not just for you know, the ancient Greeks, but the ancient Egyptians. This is common for the ancient surrounding uh, pagan nations in the midst of that day. This is where Job differs. There's a scene here in Job, a scene behind the scene, but it doesn't leave you confused as to what is going on in this life. The book of Job opens up with this picturesque scene of uh, the ancient Near East. And here's Job, a God-fearing man, a really good guy, great family. His kids, it surely, he's worried that, you know, like all kids are going to have too much fun, mess up. But his kids love each other, and they party with each other. And they're all wealthy. And then the story cuts to another scene it's not an earthly scene. It's a heavenly scene. And this is the behind-the-scenes scene that's really, really important. So in the heavenly scene, we find God in his heavenly council on a day when court is in session. And the devil shows up, feeling really, really good about himself. And he starts boasting about his dominion on earth. It's that language of, yeah, I've been, I've been strolling around on earth to and fro. His, his walking about is like he owns the place, boasting that since the fall, it all belongs to him, including mankind. And so God answers his boast with his own boast. Uh, oh, re- really? Oh, yeah? Uh, you ever come across Job, my servant? And Satan answers God's boast with another boast that God's boast is empty. That people like Job only serve God to get stuff from God. Not because they love, not because they worship God. And so Satan challenges God. Take away his stuff. See what happens. I'll tell you what's going to happen. He's going to curse you. He's going to turn his back on you. Because he's really, he's really mine. He's not yours. And God says, challenge accepted. Now, I say that this does not leave you confused. It's not supposed to. So let's answer some big elephants, problems in the room. First, Satan and these demons, they are really real. And that's a problem for us in the West because of the influence of uh, materialism, this, this philosophical worldview that says that nothing exists except matter and motion. And no, we do not walk around on the streets spouting that stuff. That's not, that's not what we do. But, but it's so pervasive. Materialism is so pervasive in our culture that materialism drives out of people, out of our minds, the reality of the spiritual world, that it, that it really exists. And it really exists right, right now, even as we're talking about it right, right now. And then, and then there's this knee-jerk reaction to rebel against authority, which just makes us skeptical. Makes us, yeah, uh, uh, it, it makes us skeptical even when we hear this stuff from the Bible itself. <clears throat> Satan, demons, they are real, and they are powerful. They are more powerful than you or me. They are more powerful than human beings. You cannot fight them under your own power. Got to accept that. Now, some people, here's a problem. Some people in the church do reckon that these things are real. The demons are real. Satan is real. And that they are powerful, more powerful than us. But they accept this stuff in an inappropriate fashion. 
in the, in the sense that people become inappropriately fascinated with demons, the devil, and their power. And that is because, it is truly because, people, when they do that, they are not equally reckoning with the infinite and the absolute power of God and his sovereignty even over the demonic, which is what we're supposed to see here in Job chapter one. So the devil hates God. He hates you. He hates what God is doing with you. And Satan's actions are completely under the control of God. My favorite ancient myth, which is not that ancient, uh, is uh, the story of J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth which is about an ancient Middle Earth. Uh, it's, it's so much bigger. Just let me, it's so much bigger than The Hobbit. It's so much bigger than The Lord of the Rings. The, that's the heart of it. It's the wonder of it. But in one of his histories, I think I've told you all this before, but this is so good. And I'll tell this again when we get back into Genesis. Uh, <clears throat> in one of the histories, he wrote, uh, he wrote of his creation narrative. He made up, Tolkien made up his own creation narrative. You read about it in uh, this book called The Silmarillion. Uh, and you read about it in the first chapter. In his creation account, uh, Tolkien writes that God creates his angels and then he instructs them and he invites them to be a part of the rest of the creation process. And the way this is all done is through music and song. And the angels get to play a part. They get to add in their music as, as God teaches them his music. So God is like this conductor of this great symphony and as they are playing, that is bringing everything into existence. So they're supposed to follow his lead, but there's one angel, the greatest of the angels, who decides to change the song. Mid-song, he goes off on his own. He doesn't like the song he wants. It says he wants to increase the power and glory of the part assigned to himself. So he adds all this discord to the song. And then there are other angels that follow him into adding discord into the song. And this is what introduces evil and all the monsters and foul creatures into Middle Earth. What this rebel angel does not realize is that even his discords, by the end of the song, even his discords end up contributing to the glory of this creation. And it's all according to God's grand design. So Tolkien, a, a Christian, <laughs> He models his myth after the biblical truth. Like even what you see right here. Here's another, here's another point how we can get at this. The, the sons of God stuff, you read about the sons of God come to present themselves before God and Satan is there too. That stuff sounds problematic too. Uh, what, what does that mean, the sons of God? The sons of God is a title. Throughout the Old Testament, it's a title and it's used to describe angels and it's used to describe human kings in the Old Testament. You've just got to pay attention to context. And there's a reason why it's ascribed to angels and why it's ascribed to human kings we're not going to get into. When it's ascribed to human kings, it's a joke uh, that Moses is making fun of them. <clears throat> but it depends on the context. Okay, it depends on the context. Uh, here it refers to angels who are presenting themselves to the Lord. And the point the Job author is making is that in heaven... God is he's surrounded by a host of beings who are awesome and powerful and they owe their love and their allegiance to God. 
Now, that, that does beg the question, okay, why, wait, why does God need a court? Like, does he need, there in their other parts, you know, in the Psalms and the prophets, they're like, where it seems like God is seeking their counsel and their input. Does God need the counsel and the input of his creation on how to do things? No, no. But, but this is the awesomeness of God's love. God has freely set his love on his creation to the degree of giving them the high honor and privilege of having a high role in the business of his creation. And this stands out right here. This vast host gathered to do God's bidding, it only serves to highlight and expose God's awesome sovereignty. As in, Satan doesn't come unannounced. He's summoned, and he has to show up and give an account of what he's been up to. And this is the big polemic. Polemic is just a, it's a fun way of arguing. It's a fun way of saying, uh, it's not this, it's this. This is a polemic to the surrounding nations of Israel when Job was written. Come back to that in a second. This is this right here, what Job is presenting is a biblical worldview of the grand stage of history and of the major players in that history. As in all all the notions uh, that the pagans had about the universe and how it works, it's all false. It's all wrong. Because the pagans believed what we were just describing at the very beginning. They believed that everything came into existence and everything runs as a result of the multiple gods engaged in warfare against one another or because of competition with one another, or because they're in sexual activity with one another. It's a chaotic universe, and everything comes about either through warfare or competition or adult relations among the gods. And Job comes along and says, this stuff is that's not how the universe works. That's all wrong. Things don't happen that things don't happen the way they happen because the gods are fighting or competing or dating. Things happen because the law, uh, the sovereign Lord has said so. God rules and all beings must bow in submission to him because there are no other gods. God is not insecure about his throne because no one presents a challenge to the purposes of God. There's a, uh, there's a story uh, from the time of Abraham Lincoln Lincoln was consulting uh, his cabinet concerning a, a very difficult decision that had to be made in the course of the war. And so they discussed, they go back and forth, and Lincoln at the end finally says, okay, y'all, l- let's vote. Then let's vote. And they go all the way around the table. No, 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 no from every single cabinet minute, uh, every single cabinet officer, and it came back to Lincoln, and there's a pause. And then Lincoln says, I. There's another pause. And then Lincoln says, and the eyes have it. <laughs> God decides the course of the world, and his vote is the only one that counts. And that is super reassuring and awesome to us. Which raises the last and seemingly, uh, the, you know, the big elephant-sized problem uh, here. So I had two friends earlier this week 
debating um, whether or not gambling should be illegal. Uh, and what people, what people don't find reassuring and awesome is how capricious and cavalier God is gambling with the life of Job. I had another friend, uh, this is a couple weeks ago, told him we were going through the, uh, the book of Job this summer. And she said, she said, oh, that's one of my big prayers. Uh, God, don't Job me. <laughs> and, but when you look, when you look at the, when you, we look at the book of Job as just a book about suffering, and then we realize that God is granting permission to Satan to basically torture Job on a bet, it's, yes, God, please don't Job me. That's awful. Like what you did to Job is awful. That it, this is a problem. This is a problem if we reduce Job to a how-to book about suffering, which is ripping it out of context. Here's the context. Who is Job? We know this. Both the Old Testament in Ezekiel and the New Testament in James say that he was a real person. Devil's real. Job is real. Okay? When? When is Job? We don't know. Uh, we don't know when. Uh, we don't know who the author is or when exactly uh, it was written. But when you look at its form, when you look at its content, what, what scholars, the ones who believe the Bible, uh, are certain of is that it's written before the time of the prophets. And it's most likely written during the time of King Solomon, which is the great age of biblical wisdom literature, which is what this is. But with all of that, you don't want to confuse when it was written with the when it was written about. That makes sense? As in, the first audience, the first readers who have the book of Job, they get when this was written about. That Job himself, he lives before the nation of Israel. And Job lives before Abraham. Because here, here there is nothing about Job, who is a God-fearing man, a man of God, being aware of a covenant made with Abraham. And we know what happens after that covenant is made with Abraham. So this is, this is Genesis 1 through 11, you know, uh, stuff that it's narrating here, that Job is somewhere in there. Okay, now here's the so what. Like, so what? Oh, it's a, big, it's a really big so what. The so what is when you remember the who and the when of Job, when you put it in its place in the bigger story, you remember this is the first time that we are seeing Satan since the fall in the Garden of Eden. Do you know how many times Satan appears in the Old Testament? Four times. First in Genesis 3. Uh, and right here, the, he doesn't show up again until right here in Job chapter 1. And this really does clarify any potential confusion and what it really does is reveal about what Job is really all about. It's, we can say, yeah, it's really weird that we find Satan in heaven. We could, we could do a whole thing on that. That is, that's weird. But the same weird thing happened in the Garden of Eden. And we kind of just gloss over that. But before the fall, Satan is allowed to intrude into the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden is a holy place. Which is why Adam and Eve have to leave the Garden after the fall when they sin. 
And, and in the holy place, when we first see Satan, in the holy place of Eden, Satan accuses God to mankind, to Adam and Eve. He's accusing God. He, he's saying to them, y'all, God is guilty of lying to you. He's, a li- he's lying to you. He doesn't really love you. Now here, the next time we see him, we see him in another holy place, the holy place of heaven, and now Satan accuses man before God, saying to God, man, does, man is lying to you. He doesn't really love you. It's the same thing. It's the same tactic. And, and, the, and what he's saying, what he's saying to God about man is really just a camouflage for his accusations, uh, for his real attack, which is against God. The real challenge here is to God. Satan's challenge to God himself is that the gospel is not true. That God's claim to be the savior of his people is an empty lie. That God cannot, he will not save his people from Satan, not from sin, and not from death. He's saying that the prophetic, you know, your prophetic gospel decree of Genesis 3.15 is not being realized in Job. It's not being realized in anybody. Isn't you cannot snatch the prey that I seized at the fall. Job's religious profession is false, it's fake. He's a hypocrite. He looks pious right now uh, because he's prosperous. And you, and this is the this is the audacity. He says, and you, God, are guilty of complicity because you've bought his fake piety with prosperity. Yeah, sure, he believes in you because you've given him everything. It's fake. It's all fake, and you're guilty of it. It's all a lie, and I'll prove it. I'll prove it all with the one man that you're boasting about. Give him to me. Let me make him suffer. And God accepts his challenge. And Job is put on trial. Let's test your accusations, Satan, against Job. I know we've got a problem with this whole arrangement as if Satan suckered God into this wager and gambling with Job's life, but that's not true. Job is going to serve as God's champion. Because through Job's trial and his ordeal, God triumphs in his trial between himself and Satan. So you see, the vindication of Job is the vindication of the Lord, Job's sovereign savior. Job, the champion of God. There is no greater nobility than that. The book of Job is first and foremost about the truthfulness of the covenant of grace. Revealed and promised right after the fall that God would save a sinful people and that he would do it by crushing this serpent, traitor. God accepts the challenge. Not, he's, he's not accepting it for his benefit. He's accepting the challenge <clears throat> for our benefit. <clears throat> there's this show. Uh, it's Father's Day, so I'm indulging myself. Uh, there's a show called The Office. Uh, Michael Scott is the regional manager of Dunder Mifflin, and uh, he completely despises the HR rep of Dunder Mifflin. This guy, poor guy, 
this poor guy named Toby. Uh, I think I think Toby's one of the writers on the show, so I think some of this is self-inflicted. Uh, but Michael hates Toby because Michael has no authority over Toby because Toby's HR, and Toby is always stepping in uh, to save the other, to save the rest of the office from Michael's, you know, impulsive whims. So a running thread. This is the running thread. Uh, one of the running threads throughout the whole series, from beginning to end, is Michael's <clears throat> utter hatred of Toby. Now, there are all these incredibly, incredibly awkward, awful quotes of Michael's intense feelings toward Toby. Yeah, I'm just going to give you the uh, PG smattering of Michael's bashing poor Toby. <laughs> this is early, early on in the, uh, the first season. Uh, why are is Michael talking to Toby, who's stepping in? He says, why are you the way that you are? Honestly, every time I try to do something fun or exciting, you make it not that way. I hate so much about the things that you choose to be. Okay, here's another time to Toby. <laughs> and this is like, this isn't even a big deal. This is just like a side comment from Toby. And he says, uh, no one asked you anything ever. So whomever's name is Toby, why don't you take a letter opener and stick it in your skull? Yo, that's the PG stuff. It's awful. Like, it, it, Michael's hatred, it's awful. Michael is wrong. This is terrible. And if you're a Christian, y'all, this is just like, that is a fraction of the hatred that the devil has for God and for you. It's like, it's real. That hatred is, is really, really real. And what you're seeing here with Satan is this revolt syndrome. In the garden, Satan, full of envy, full of malicious hate, his pride threatened at this lower creature, you know, us, Adam, Eve, his pride threatened at this lower creature made in the likeness of God, given glory and dominion over creation. He can't stand it. That he's called to serve this lower being? No. And so he subtly schemes and he successfully thwarts man's progress to glory. And that success lasts all of a second. Because God shows up right there in Genesis 3 in glorious, terrible judgment, and he decrees redemption for people, that God would still have a people, and that the Savior born from that covenant people, he would crush the devil in total defeat. So what you've got from the fall is Satan's revolt and it's going, to be, it's going to be this conspiring all throughout the Old Testament, this conspiring against this champion Savior to come. He doesn't want it to happen. And what does God do? He laughs. This is from the Psalms. He laughs, this is Psalm 2, he laughs at Satan's raging against this champion. He laughs at the world's raging against this champion. And the joke on Satan is, is that God makes the hostility of Satan, makes it contribute to the fulfillment of the gospel promise. He makes his hate uh, contribute to the fulfillment of the redemptive triumph of his champion savior. This is, I can't say it better than this. This is uh, Old Testament scholar Meredith Klein. He says, God permits Satan to continue to be a factor in human history according to God's unfathomable wisdom so that Satan can play his guilty part in the crucifixion of Jesus 
which is the striking, the cr- uh, which is the striking of the servant's heel, which this is so good, which by the alchemy of God's divine promise of grace turns out to be the crushing of the serpent's head. Yeah, Satan wants Jesus to go to the cross, and he gets him at the cross, except that right there at the cross is where Jesus gets Satan. And since the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus triumphantly into heaven, having accomplished his work, we're told in Revelation that at that moment, in history at that moment, Satan is thrown out of the heavenly courts. He's no longer granted access because no, there is no more case. It's been done. It's accomplished. Case closed. Uh, and now he turns his attention to us, knowing that his time is running short. And the big so what for us, this is the big so what, this is where we're closing. The big so what for us is we should not fear the devil. We should not fear demons. And if the devil and demons are that much more powerful than humans, we should also not fear other people who oppose us and persecute us. You may have noticed that the gospel and the church are being further and further relegated, uh, not just to the sidelines of society, but out of bounds that we are becoming an exiled community on the cultural margins of society. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, they're under big pressure amidst a lot of outrage. And the gospel and the church, what is said is the gospel and the church who holds on to that gospel are foolish, offensive, and dangerous. And so the threat to us is to give it up. And the question for us, put it this way, is who will we fear? We should fear the Lord. And to fear God is to take him seriously in awe and love and worship. Another one of my beloved professors, David Wells, uh, he would say this. He said, that one of the defining characteristics of, the modern, of modern evangelicalism is that God rests upon us ever so lightly. That's not the fear of God. The fear of God means that God rests upon us with weightiness. Isn't like his truth and his grace is super, super, it's, it's the most real thing to us. His salvation is everything to us. The church has its problems. Uh, because the church is made up of people and uh, we all know what people are like. Um, But, or and, and the church is entrusted with the gospel for salvation. And the church entrusted with the gospel for salvation, the church is not the problem. So come what may, what else are we gonna do but hold on to this gospel with each other and two others. Believing that God is still sovereign, infinitely superior in power and wisdom, and he is right now, he is sovereignly reigning all things, even if we don't understand it, even if it doesn't look like that, he is sovereignly reigning all things according to his will. And it's all going according to plan. That's good news. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news that we read about in Job, that you are sovereign and you are full of grace. Lord, that you have saved a people uh, because of what your champion has done for us, what we could not do for ourselves. And we praise you. Uh, we pray that you would continue to gather us on Sundays, that you would gather us during the work <clears throat> week in order that we might continue to praise you, in order that we might continue to love one another <clears throat> and point one another to our champion Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.